Hello and welcome to the Rocky Peak Young Adults Podcast. We meet Sunday nights at 7.30 at the church at Rocky Peak. For info on upcoming events, find us on Instagram at rpyoungadults. Enjoy the message. Yes! Yes! All right, RPYA family, how y'all doing tonight? Yes, 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 yes. Can you, uh, you guys can hear me in the back? Just wave your hand. Wave your hand if you can hear me in the back. Great. Oh, hi, Sam. All right. Well, dude and dudettes, I'm so glad to be back with you guys one more week. Thank you guys for letting me show up and uh, talk about Jesus and stuff. You guys ready to talk about Jesus and stuff? I'm ready to talk about Jesus and stuff. Man, um, speaking of Jesus, I used to be, I used to want to be a kung fu master. And uh, why are you laughing? Don't I look like I could be? I got the potential, but I guess potential doesn't equal uh, destiny. Uh, clearly. So I want to be a Kung Fu master. I was 14 years old, and I used to watch Bruce Lee movies all the time. You know who Bruce Lee is, right? He entered the dragon. That's right. Most of you got that. Uh, I used to watch a ton of Jackie Chan movies, even the Australia ones where it was, like, really badly dubbed. Like, yeah, I love Jackie Chan. I love Bruce Lee. I even went old school, and I used to rock the Chuck Norris. All right? Yes. Dude, that guy is legacy. All right? You guys all should know Chuck Norris. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about. And so one day, one day, one day, um, my mom and I, we lived in a studio apartment. And one day, this guy moves in next to us. He's our next door neighbor. He knew that I had issues that like my, 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 me, my mom, we lived alone and my dad was in and out. So he took it upon himself to like, hey, you know, maybe I need to mentor this kid. Right. So I was hanging out with this guy. His name is Sean. And I was 14 years old. And he's like, hey, you know, like, you know, I grew up in like a Catholic home, but I'm also a kung fu teacher. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, really? Like, teach me your ways. Let me be the grasshopper. Um, It's a throwback of another show that nobody knows. But yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And um, so he, he, he like invited me over and like, and we started, like, training and doing kung fu. And, like, he was training under a master, right? They called the master Sifu. He was the apprentice, Sihing. And I was Kelly. And, and I, like, every, every, like, every day I would train. We would do, like, our horse dances and cyber horse dances. And then we'd do all kinds of, you know, crazy kung fu stuff, right? And it was the best ever. Like, my life's destiny was unfolding before my 14-year-old eyes. It was happening. Destiny. And one day, uh, it, I came to a, a, a portion of my training where you are given an animal, like a spirit animal. And once you get that animal, like all of your like, moves kind of like have to emulate that animal that fits like your body type. And my Sifu, or, my, or the Sihing, which is well, Sean, um, he, he, he was the one who would help me determine which animal I was. And so you had a monkey, you had an elephant, you, you had a snake, and you had a dragon. And I was like, oh, those sound awesome. Great, great. So I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, what kind of animal could I be? And like, oh, I'm, I'm most likely a, like, a, like, a, like a lion or a, <laughs> I'm 14. I'm most likely like a lion or a dragon. How about dragon? I'll go with dragon, okay. And so I was, in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, today's the day where I get my animal. And so I go to Sean's uh, apartment, and I'm like, all right, I'm ready for my animal. And so we have to, like, sit down and kind of, like, meditate. And I'm like, I think I got it. I think I know what it is. And then, but he tells me. I don't tell him. So he tells me, your animal. And I'm thinking, dragon, please, 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 dragon, please, dragon. 
He says, you are a crane. I'm like, what? A bird? We eat those for Thanksgiving. That is the worst animal you could give me. What kind of kung fu master is a crane? And I didn't want to be a crane, but I knew I looked like one. Because, like, <laughs> and he was right, because I was 14. And long legs, short torso, long nose. It was the only thing that I was missing was, like, feathers. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I was disappointed. Very disappointed. So, uh, you know, so I continued my kung fu training for like just maybe a couple of years after that, and then he moved off, and I could never saw him again. And then later on in my life, I, you know, I decided, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm in my in my mid twenties. I think I need to get in shape. Uh, so I don't want to spend money in a gym fighting against metal. I want to fight against people. Maybe I need to go to one of those cage fighting gyms. Those, you know, the the jujitsu ones, right? I could do this, right? So I enrolled into this jujitsu multi or multi <laughs> mixed martial arts gym and uh, <laughs> multi level. <laughs> I didn't go there. And so I start training. I start training. And, um, and you know, like you don't think you're actually doing a lot because you're just like barely moving. It's like two dudes and it's kind of uncomfortable. Like, you know, it's weird. It's just like your head is pushed up against his chest and, you know, like you get like someone's like sweaty armpit in your nostril. It's the, it's, that was like, I'm like, why did I do this to myself? And I, uh, but I still like, like, like the challenge. It was really exhausting until one day I couldn't breathe. Uh, not because somebody was suffocating me, because I was having asthma, having an asthma attack. And so I'm like, dang it, asthma, you got me again. And, and so I, I find myself going to the doctor, you know, you know, taking all these like, you know, spritzer spray, you know, ash, you know, asthma stuff. And I'm like, man, I can't be a cage fighter. My asthma got me. And so I was nevertheless, the D word again, disappointed. Yes, disappointed, disappointed. But then 27 came around, you know, 27. It's time to give it the old college try again. It's time to become a ninja master again. I just couldn't get over this. Like, I had to keep going back to this. So I call my boy Sean, and I'm like, hey, I'm in, I live in Huntington Beach, but I'd be willing, you know, I want to just catch up with you and see if maybe uh, you would train me. Uh, maybe we can meet halfway, you know, maybe, you know, you know th- three times a week or something like that. And so I meet up with Sean, right, my old seafood. You guys remember? But he's now, now he's a seafood, not a seahing, because he's like straight-up Jackie Chan status now. Like, he... It's just got muscles on top of muscles. And so he meets me at Starbucks. <laughs> and, uh, and I sit down, and I'm looking at Sean, and Sean's, like, looking at me. I'm like, hey, man, how you doing? Da, da, da. I'm like, yeah, like, I became a Christian. I'm in ministry now, all this other stuff. He's like, oh, man, great. I'm so proud of you, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> I'm like, so, Sean, let's cut to the chase. Will you train me? He said, let me see your wrists. He, he grabbed my hands. He looked at me, looked at my wrists, looked at me. He gave me my wrist back. And he said, I can't train you. I'm like, what do you mean you can't train me? Like, I'm as strong as an ox or a dragon, remember? <laughs> He's like, no, um, your, your, your wrists are out of condition. Like, you know, you have, you have, um, you have very brittle bones. <laughs> I'm like, brittle? <laughs> what are you talking He's like, maybe you should try tai, tai Chi. I'm like, I don't drink that stuff. And so <laughs> I'm like, no way. 
And nevertheless, that was yet another time I was disappointed, disappointed. Uh, the truth was, I did have asthma, my bones were brittle, and I did look like a bird. And, <laughs> and I had to come to grips with the reality of my current condition. I had to, because there's no other way around it. And, um, and sometimes the weight of my disappointment covered the reality of my situation. I couldn't see. I couldn't see the reality when I looked in the mirror. I mean, have you ever heard the term that nobody lies to you better than yourself? I was really good at it because my disappointment, my dreams, my aspirations got in the way of the reality I was living in currently. And I know that it doesn't just apply in the marketplace and it doesn't just apply in relationships, but it also applies to my relationship with Jesus. Sometimes what I expect Jesus to do or accomplish in my life gets in the way of me actually seeing Jesus for who he is and what he is doing. And so today, we're going to ask the question, uh, where's Jesus in our disappointment? Where is Jesus in our disappointment? And, and, and ultimately, we can ask, how do we see Jesus even when we are disappointed? How do we see Jesus even when we are disappointed? Um, <clears throat> there's a, a very disappointing story in the Bible that we're going to open up today. We're in a series called uh, stories that you, you perhaps didn't learn in Sunday school, maybe for good reason. Um, but this particular story is, is very unique in Luke's gospel. And it's one of the first occurrences that Jesus, it's one of the first times we see Jesus after he's resurrected, after he's been dead. You know, he, he died on a Friday. You know, he was strong enough to push the stone away because on Friday he did some CrossFit. And... Oh, too soon. <laughs> and, um, but nevertheless, his, apo- his disciples, his closest friends, the people who hung around the disciples, none of them expected their Savior to be dead. None of them expected their Savior, who was going to save them from the Romans, to be crucified by the Romans. Nobody expected that. And therefore, they were left disappointed. Right, This is probably one of the greatest disappointment uh, passages in the Bible. But you see somebody recovering from disappointment. You see somebody meeting Jesus in their disappointment. And whatever happened there, we can have now. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. The question is, how do we see Jesus in our disappointment? How do we see Jesus in our disappointment? The story is, starts in verse 13. <clears throat> 2413. And what's happening is that uh, you have two of Jesus's disciples, not the not the main 12. These are obscure 12. These are the people that don't make it in the 12 disciples group. They weren't, you know, popular enough or whatever. They weren't sold out enough or whatever. They just didn't get to Jesus first. But they were around Jesus and they heard him speak and they watched him for the last for who knows how long. But they were around the apostles and they knew the apostles. And they knew that Jesus, something was supposed to happen three days after Jesus died. They, they knew something was going to happen. So they waited Friday. They waited Saturday. And now there's Sunday. Now here we are in Sunday, Luke 24. Right? Jesus rises from the dead, maybe 6 a.m. 7, 8. Still, they haven't seen Jesus. 9, 10. Just, all right, no Jesus. Now it's 4 o'clock, maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. These people still have not seen Jesus. Now, 
They've given up hope. Now they're starting to walk. Not towards Jerusalem, but away towards their home in Emmaus. Emmaus, which is seven miles away from where things happen. Verse 13, let's start the story. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles away from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about what had happened. Verse 15. Because you can see that they were talking to each other. They're like, did you know, did you see what just happened? That's messed up. And they're like, yeah, I can't believe they did that to him. As they were talking and discussing these things to each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Pause. This should be, this, this should be interesting. But they were kept from recognizing him. Pause. Now you have Jesus walking up on two unsuspecting disciples as if we were taking a journey and we were just super bummed, man. We're just, man, me, me and Logan are just super bummed about what just happened. I can't believe that. We thought we were going to get saved, but now we're stuck with these Roman soldiers taxing us again. And then along comes Jesus. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> I can't believe that, huh? Right? This is so funny to me. Jesus has a sense of humor, and I love every bit of it, right? For, right, he does not reveal himself to them. He lets them stew in their disappointment. I mean, and honestly, we only have 40 days of this. Like, Jesus is going to be resurrected for 40 days on earth, so he has 40 days to reveal himself to all of humanity. But instead of working the program, he focuses his time with people. And if I were Jesus' PR manager, I would say, uh-uh, Jesus. We got a plan. We got a program. You need to be in Jerusalem, in the temple, showing yourself to the rabbis like, ha-ha. Can't get me. You don't need to be with these two obscure disciples heading in the wrong direction to a town that nobody cares about. He just, he totally shakes us. He zags on us hard. Verse 17. He asked them, Jesus asked them, what, what, what are you guys discussing about? And they stopped. And they looked down. Their faces were downcast. They were Super bummed, disappointed, distracted, distraught. Verse 18. One of them, named Cleopas, we're going to call him Cleo for now, asked him, um, are, you, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened? Are you, I mean, Seriously. Pause. This guy is giving attitude to the creator of the world, the universe, who just conquered death, right? He's like talking down (laughs) to the one who spoke the earth into existence, saying, do you really not know what has been going on for the past three days? Are you the only one? And this is what Jesus says. What things? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth. And and like, there's like a parenthetical, like, you, not smart person. They replied, 
He's a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. Uh huh. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And Jesus is like, uh huh. And they crucified him. Oh, super bummed. So the interesting thing is, if we're going to ask the question, how do we, how do we, how do we find Jesus in the disappointment? Because they didn't see Jesus because of their disappointment. So how do we find Jesus in their disappointment? And instead of Jesus dissolving their disappointment right away, what does he do? He draws it out. See, great teachers and great lessons are not taught. They're caught. Great lessons are not taught, they're caught. See, he draws out their curiosity so that when they are ready at the right time, they will be able to receive the information. But if you were to just hand feed it to them right away, they weren't ready. They're too distraught. They're too disappointed. All of their hopes and dreams have been shattered. They weren't ready. So Jesus asks them. Jesus draws them out. Perhaps you're in your disappointment. And Jesus isn't giving you answers right away because he wants to draw you out. Be real with him. Be vulnerable. Be honest with him. And let him meet you in your disappointment. The second way we meet Jesus in our disappointments is we take advantage of what we have been given. We take advantage of what we have been given. If you're following along, first point is the teacher draws out our dissatisfaction. The second point is that we take advantage of what we have been given. Verse 21. Cleopas continues to tell Jesus what had happened. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem us, uh, redeem Israel. We hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And what is more, on the third day, well, so, and what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. Because they knew something was supposed to happen on the third day, and here we are, and still, no Jesus, Jesus. Verse 22, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said to them that he was alive. Awesome. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just found it just as the woman said, but they did not find Jesus. Not awesome. All right. So how can we take advantage of what we have been given? You need to know this. They had a limited view of what Jesus could do. Right? They had hoped that he would redeem Israel. They had a very limited view of what redemption meant. Right? They, they, they thought, okay, if Jesus is going to redeem Israel, he has to do it this way. He's got to overthrow the, the government. He's got to be a political leader. He's got to be a military leader. He can't just be a spiritual leader. Right? right? They had a very narrow view of what God can do. The second thing was, the same evidence that Cleopas and, you know, Miss Cleo had, the, the two people walking, scholars think it, you know, might have been husband and wife. The same evidence they have is the same evidence we have. The same evidence they had was the same evidence we had. And there are five substantial 
pieces of evidence that Christians typically look to to verify that Jesus probably, most likely, and, well, it's more likely than not that Jesus did rise from the dead. There's five pieces of evidence, and the five pieces of evidence that they had is the same five pieces of evidence we have. The first one is that we can verify that Jesus was actually alive. Cleopas knew that. That's why his hopes were shattered. They saw Jesus do those things. And they had documented cases of Jesus rising people from the dead, healing the sick and the lame. And also, we have documented historians who are not even Christian who, is, who can verify the life of Jesus Christ. We have Ignatius and Clement of Rome. Number two, Jesus actually did die. Like, he straight up, you know, died death, like, like completely dead. Like, everybody thought he was dead. Like, once they crucified him, crucifixion was not like a temporary solution. You realize that, right? It was not a temporary punishment. It was a permanent punishment for anybody who rebelled against Rome. The Jesus followers never never imagined that he would actually rise from the dead. They were surprised. I mean, here's one of those disciples right now, totally bummed. The disciples were in a... T- we're, we're in a room, locked doors, because they were afraid of the Roman government. Because the person that they were following died. They couldn't be protected anymore by the rabbi. We all knew that Jesus did die. And three, we all do verify. Well, we have the same thing that Cleo had, an empty tomb, is the same thing we have. We have no body in any grave, Right? We have no body in any grave. There's no tomb. I mean, there's no body in any grave. So basically, what I'm saying is that nobody expected nobody, right? Nobody in the first century expected nobody to be there. When the Roman guards, there was probably 10 to 12 of them, took Jesus' body. Well, somebody took Jesus' body to Joseph's graves. Joseph's grave. Well, it was a tomb that was being rented. Um, and then they put a big stone over the grave, which is kind of like a cave with a big stone. But then they put a Roman, they put Roman guards there, not a Roman guard, but probably 10 to 12 Roman guards to make sure that nobody disturbed the body. Right. And so at that point, one person could not overthrow them. 12 fishermen could not overthrow the Roman guards. Something miraculous happened on the third day when that stone was rolled away. And there was no body. So the Roman government tried to make, um, try to blame it on the disciples. Like, oh, the disciples stole the body. But the thing is, is that it's not reasonable to think that that the disciples stole the body is because they were afraid. They were scared out of their mind. And then they showed up preaching that Jesus rose from the dead publicly. Like, they did not steal the body. And furthermore, Jesus did appear to over 500 people after his death. It's verified in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Man, there's more evidence that, I mean, if this was a court case, it literally wouldn't, like, it would be undisputed that Jesus rose from the dead. And then lastly, the apostles and the disciples of Jesus They were all willing to die for this. And guess what? They did. They did die. See, at first they didn't believe it. But Jesus showed up and it was undisputed. 
He revealed himself to over 500 people. And they couldn't help but share that Jesus was alive. And instead of Christianity dying with the disciples, it exploded. Because we couldn't just lie. And we just couldn't lie and say that Jesus didn't rise. See, nobody's willing to die for a lie. Like if you knew you were lying, if you knew that you stole the body, if you knew that you were making this up, would you be willing to die for this in order to? Probably not. Especially not 500 people. Especially not current day, like generations after generations. And the book of Luke was written only 60 years after the fact. So there's people around Luke that are verifying the resurrection of Jesus when he's writing this. And the same evidence that we have now is the same evidence they had then. But even more so, we have the Bible in its completeness. 66 books, 44 authors over the course of 1,500 years. Yet, they're all saying the same story about Jesus. Again, if this was a court case, it would be completely undisputed. And I love the fact that C.S. Lewis did write a book in an attempt to disprove Christianity called The Case for Christ. And then he ended up becoming a Christian because there's too much evidence. I love that stuff. I love when that happens. So take advantage of what you have. You're going to be held, held accountable for it, whether you not, whether you know it or not. God went out of his way to send his son, and now you have a book documenting the historicity of what happened. You're going to be responsible for what's in that book. And they were responsible too. Now Jesus finally speaks up. <laughs> I love what Jesus says here. <laughs> All right. Now Jesus is done being told what to do and who he was. Now it's time for Jesus to say something. Verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are and slow to believe all the things that the prophets have spoken. You're slow to believe what the prophets have spoken. What did the prophets say? See, what Jesus is saying is, did they not teach you this in Sunday school? Did you not know that the Messiah had to suffer? Who taught you this anyways? See, there's certain things that were being kept from good Jewish boys in Sunday school. And there's certain things that are being kept from good, you know, Christian kids in Sunday school. In fact, I probably should not share as much as I do, but uh, I do. Uh, So two weeks ago, I was teaching in middle school. And that's when I realized that's why we don't share those things in middle school, right? Uh, Three weeks ago, two weeks ago, (laughs) I was in middle school and I was like, Sometimes I'm not really, like, responsible for what I say, and I just say things. And I was, like, given this illustration about why, you know, you know, we need to be sorry for, you know, not just the bad things we do, but also the good things we do for the wrong reasons. And I was talking about all these illustrations. And then I bring up, like, you know, sometimes we think about sex as something that we save and then, you know, that God will reward us with a good marriage later. And, and, and I, was like, I was like, oh, dang. <laughs> these, these are 13-year-olds. And literally, I kid you not, a kid gets up in the middle of the, of the audience, covers his ears, and walks back saying, nah, 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 nah. I was like, oh, no. I'm going to get an email. And so I'm like, that's why we don't talk about that stuff in Sunday school. Well, similarly, similarly, I won't do that again. Similarly, The Jewish people have been historically oppressed. 
historically oppressed. I mean, we even see that with Nazi Germany, right? Uh, we've seen the Israelites, the Jewish people, like, been stomped on, taken advantage of. You know, people have tried to, you know, exterminate them forever. So I would imagine in, you know, rabbi school on Saturday, you know, they're teaching kids about this Messiah who's big and strong and going to save them from the Babylonians or from the Persian Empire or even from the Roman Empire. Yeah! And all the kids are like, yeah, Savior! Right? Right? And, and, and they're not thinking about a suffering Messiah because we've been suffering so much. Mm. (laughs) They're not thinking about a suffering Messiah. They're thinking about a saving Messiah. And whatever picture in their head of being saved, that's their vision of the future. Anything less than that would be the D word. Disappointing. But nevertheless, Jesus rebukes them because they are still responsible for what's in God's word. They're still responsible because God gave his word. And he is responsible. So he can't say, nobody told me. Nobody told me that you were supposed to, you know, be a spiritual leader, not just a political leader. Nobody told me. No, you're going to be responsible. See, Jesus is the Savior in the suffering because he suffered. Jesus is the Savior in your suffering, not from your suffering. Because he suffered, we can suffer with him. Until we don't have to suffer for eternity. Which is point three. Jesus is the Savior in the suffering. Verse 26. Jesus continues in his rhetorical questions because he masterfully teaches this way. Did not the Savior, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter glory? There's an order to this business, okay? He has to suffer, then glory, right? None of the disciples expected persecution. They didn't sign up to follow Jesus and get persecuted. No, they signed up so that they can reign in glory to the right and to the left. That's what they were expecting. Verse 26, though, Jesus says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. We have to suffer, then glory. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses, because it's a seven-mile journey, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he gave them an Old Testament survey class. He explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. What we don't realize is that the scriptures all point to Jesus. It's like it's like Sixth Sense, the movie. You know, that's a great movie to watch twice, right? The first time, you're like, oh, yeah, like as a psychologist, and, you know, the kid sees dead people. <laughs> the silly kid sees dead people. <laughs> Who does that? And then at the end, you realize that the psychologist is dead the whole time. Oh, come on. Whatever. Dude, that was for the kingdom, all right? Just take it for the kingdom. And then the second time when you watch it, You're like, oh, that's right. He's not really looking at him. Oh, they're not really talking about the same. (gasps) He is dead, right? That's like the opposite of the gospel, right? Where the gospel is, oh, he's alive. (laughs) (laughs) And it's impossible to read the whole Old Testament and the whole Bible without seeing Jesus. It's impossible to read the Old Testament without seeing Jesus in the garden as the seed who was going to crush the head of the serpent. 
when the serpent was going to bruise his heel. It's impossible not to see Jesus as the scapegoat. It's impossible to not see Jesus when Isaac is about to be sacrificed by Abraham, but then God stops him and provides a sacrifice on his own. It's impossible not to see Jesus when we're talking about in Exodus 12 about the Passover lamb that is slain to free the Israelites from the wrath that was coming. It's impossible not to see Jesus when you read the prophecies of Isaiah 42, when he says, uh, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond any human being, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. It's impossible not to see Jesus when you read Zechariah 11, 12 through 13, that the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and the money would be thrown on the temple floor and be used to by a potter's field written thousands of years before it came to be. It's impossible not to see Jesus in the scriptures. And what they had then, we have now, and we are responsible for what we have. We are not responsible for what we don't have. You are responsible to know what's in the scriptures, even in Leviticus. Sorry. So how do we, how, how do we see Jesus? In our disappointment, number one, Jesus teaches us by drawing us out. Number two, take advantage of what you have been given. Three, remember that Jesus is the Savior in our suffering, not from our suffering. And four, final, when you see Jesus in your disappointments, they become divine appointments. Verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. So they finally get to, you know, Cleo's house. And Jesus is like, all right, guys, see you later. Bye. Verse 29. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So Jesus stayed with them, still not knowing it's Jesus, by the way. I don't even know if they even asked his name. What did Jesus say? I'm Bob. (laughs) Hey, Bob, stay with us. All right, Cleo. Verse 30. When he was at the table with them, He, as in Jesus, took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open. They recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. Like that. Just bam, out. What? They weren't disappointed anymore. I guarantee that. Right? Okay, let's explain. Let's break this apart. Right, their eyes were open. Their eyes were open. How did they see Jesus finally? Like, what happened? What happened in the house that didn't happen on the road? What happened in the house that didn't happen on the road? What happened in the house that didn't happen on the road? Jesus didn't assume that he was going to be invited in the house. Come on, people. Jesus is a gentleman. He doesn't force his way into your life. And unless you invite him in, he won't come. So Jesus didn't assume that he was invited in his life until they invited Jesus in. Because whatever they were learning from Jesus, their eyes were finally being opened to the reality of a Savior who meets them in their suffering. 
who knows what it's like to be oppressed, to be crushed, to be damaged, to be abused. So they're like, Jesus, you can't leave us yet. No, more, Bob, you can't leave us yet. We love what you're saying. We love the words that are coming out of your mouth. We don't know who you are, but we, we know the words that are coming out of your mouth, and we love it. These words can't end now. Come in. So Jesus comes in. And instead of Cleo and Miss Cleo being the host, right, because they're the ones supposed to be serving the bread, blessing it, and passing it around. No, no, no. When Jesus comes in, when Jesus is invited in, He's the one serving you food. He's the one providing nourishment. He's the one blessing, breaking, and serving. But there was something so familiar about the way Jesus was praying. There's something so familiar about the way Jesus was acting. There's something so familiar about this moment where he takes the bread, he blesses it, and then he breaks it, and then he passes it around. There's something so familiar, and maybe there's something so close. Because now... Instead of walking this way and now they're in a circle and they're seeing each other face to face and they're, they're in close quarters and they're maybe seeing something that they hadn't seen before. Maybe when they're breaking the bread, they see Jesus' hands and he blesses it and then he passes it to him and then they see the scars perhaps. And it all comes together that there is a suffering Savior that was risen from the dead to save us in our sufferings, not from it. And that's when their eyes were open because no longer did they just see their disappointment. They were able to clearly see Jesus. I want you to know that we serve, we serve a suffering Savior who saved us in our suffering and not from it. Because he suffered first. Because he suffered first, we don't have to suffer alone. Because he suffered first, we don't have to suffer alone. I'm going to invite the band up. Because he suffered first, we don't have to suffer alone. What I want you to do is imagine if we can lay aside our discomfort just for a moment. Lay, Lay aside our our, our expectations. And let's just take a moment to sit at the feet of Jesus and eat from his table. We're going to do something called communion. And if you're not a Jesus follower, that's okay. You don't have to take. But this is only for people who consider themselves Jesus followers. And this is something that we do to remember that no matter how uncomfortable our life is, no matter where our expectations lie, our eyes are on Jesus first, not on our circumstances. No matter what kind of destination we think we're supposed to end up with, our eyes are not going to be there because we serve a God not of the destination, but of the journey. Right? He's the one that, that walks with us. We serve a God, not of the program, but of the people. And so, what I want you to know, 1 Corinthians 17 says, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, 
he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, 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 which is for you. And do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. Right now is a moment where we don't remember our disappointments, but we regain our hope in Jesus. Where we take our... I don't know, we take our eyes off of our circumstances and we put it on the Savior. We take, (laughs) we put our eyes back on Christ who may be in our crisis because we serve a Savior who saves us even while we are still suffering. So let's take a moment. There are some communion tables back there. There's about three of them. Our worship team is gonna just keep vamping and doing some worship music. And when you're ready, take the bread, take the cup, and make this moment meaningful between you and Jesus.